Australia is not a secular country. It is a free country. Okay, well, our democracy's basically been inherited from the, the British um, and it's adopted some of the uh, innovations of the American system as well. We work on the theory that not everyone is either interested in politics or if they are interested in politics, don't have the time to be involved in citizens' assemblies and decision-making and, and managing how we run our government. So we effectively delegate those chores to people who do have the time. Uh, we have two houses of parliament. Uh, that was based on the uh, checks and balances theory more from the United States than it was from the, the British. The British had two houses of parliament. That was because they had two classes of politician, those who were there by dint of their parents, so they were the nobility, uh, they were there because they were hereditary peers or whatever, and that's the House of Lords. Uh, and then to accommodate the, uh, the hoi polloi, the proletariat, the, uh, the demos, uh, they had a lower house, the House of Commons, and Commons sort of tells the way they thought about it. Uh, the British system is based on single member constituencies, so that means you elect one person to represent a particular area. It's not the only way of doing it. You can elect a number of people to represent a particular area or you can uh, elect people at large. Um, so, and that's pertinent because at the House of Representatives uh, level, we have representative single member constituencies. But at the Senate level, we have multiple people elected to represent areas, which are the, the states and the territories. Uh, and that's a system which looks as though it's replicating the British system, but it's really replicating the American system, mm. uh, where they have a Senate. The Senate being a, a name which is drawn from the uh, Roman system of government. So you know, mm. there's a lot of antecedents here and a lot of trial and error that's happened over centuries. Yeah. Uh, the other thing which the Senate is supposed to do is supposed to even up the interests of smaller groups. Uh, so Queensland has the same number of senators as New South Wales, which is kind of reasonable. They're about 50% larger than we are. We also have the same number of senators as Tasmania which does seem a little bit unreasonable because Tasmania is something like 500,000 people mm. and Queensland something like 6 million. Right. Uh, but that exists in theory to uh, give the states equal interest and not to allow any particular part of the country to dominate. It was also something that was adopted as one of the compromises to get the states of Australia to join together. Uh, if, if states hadn't been guaranteed states' rights in the Senate, then that probably wouldn't have happened. Hmm. Uh, what's happened since then is that the Senate isn't the state's house. The Senate is just another form of the party's house, but it's the one where you're more likely, because of the method of election, to get minor parties, uh, and those minor parties often hold the balance of power. Hmm. So that holds the uh, House of Representatives in check to a certain extent. It means that they can't necessarily just do what they want to. It's not a designed check on power, but it's an effective check on power. Well, so it has a history. It wasn't always like that. So the proportional representation, which is what we call the system in the Senate, wasn't there at the beginning. 
which meant that up until, I forget when the change was made, I think it might have been in the 40s. Okay. Uh, up until then, it was quite possible for, and, and it happened quite uh, frequently, that the party in the lower house got the numbers in the upper house. Since we've had proportional representation, and in particular, since they increased the number of senators from 10 to 12, um, it's made it less likely that the party in the lower house will actually control the upper house. Although, you know, it does happen. Um, Malcolm Fraser managed to achieve it a um, couple of times, I think, from memory. And John Howard achieved it once. But, and that might have been his downfall mm, uh, because ultimately. it allowed him to bring work choices in, which was a factor in the election 2007 mm. that he lost. And that might not have happened. Uh, otherwise, but still, the Senate, even you know, in its sort of non-multi-party uh, or non-proportional representation sense, had committees of review, and it saw itself as a House of Review. And when I briefly worked for a senator in the 70s, they took that role quite seriously. The number of Dorothy Dixes in the Senate was much smaller than in the lower house because even senators in the party that formed the government in the lower house felt it was part of their job to make sure that things didn't get through too easily. So the House of Representatives is where the government is formed. The government has to have the numbers, at least on a confidence motion um, and on the, the um, budget in the, um, in the House of Representatives. And the budget is also known as supply. Yeah, supply. Um, but, well, there's a supply, the budget isn't supply actually, there's a supply bill which authorises the expenditure which is announced in the budget. Gotcha. Um, and in the Senate, you don't have to have the numbers there because the government isn't decided there. Well, I think things have changed a lot since the 70s. You know, there were a lot of people there who would cross the floor in the lower house as well, and there's mm. a lot fewer now. The party that I was a member of, the Liberal Party, used to pride itself that it would allow members to cross the floor, and they used that to differentiate themselves from Labor. Uh, I think what's happened is that the media, uh, partly under Labor influence, I think interpreted any crossing the floor as a sign of weakness. Uh, as Paul Keating once, I think it was Paul Keating once said, if you can't govern yourself, you can't govern the, the country. So there was this idea that if people were crossing the floor, then that was a problem. You've got to accept though, there's two lots of people that they work for. There's the electorate, but there's also the political party because yeah, the brands are significant. Most members of parliament would not get elected if they didn't have the franchise from a major party. Mm. Um, and so while you should be free to cross the, the floor, in my view, you still have to face the consequences, which is that your pre-selection councillor might say, why are we supporting you? Uh, because you don't support the brand that, uh, that we're here for. And I agree with that. So I should probably explain the process for selecting candidates, at least in the major parties. And I think in the minor parties, it might be pretty haphazard, but in the major yeah. parties, they have some form of pre-selection council, uh, which at least in the case of the uh, Liberal, National and Labor parties is constituted of members from the local area. They'll generally have more than one branch in the local area, but members from the local area, plus members of the uh, state governing body. So in the Liberal Party, Party it used to be that the state executive couldn't have more than 25% of the voters in a uh, pre-selection. Yep. Um, Which is a fair weight and influence if their vote is needed to, to 
you know, decide between some good candidates or some popular candidates, but it's not enough to overrule the locals. Yeah. Um, and the federal executive, or the state executive rather, not the federal executive and the Liberal Party, um, did have the power to disendorse a candidate. So they did have an overriding power. Um, so, you know, Pauline Hanson was someone who came within that ambit. There was some, there was some um, um, complications in that, which means she wasn't actually disendorsed. She resigned as a candidate, but the process had been started. Uh, in the ALP, it's a little bit more complex, I think, if mm. you don't get a, a large enough percentage of votes in the local pre-selection, it can go to the state and even the federal. Yep. Um, so, so it's not always the way that I'm describing it, but it's generally a variation on it. What that means is that you often get members of parliament, at least in the Liberal Party, who have their local branch members on side, and to a certain extent they can control who the local branch members are, because if you're the local member, your best place to go out there and recruit people into branches in your electorate. Yeah. Um, so you can have maverick, uh, for lack of a better word, members of parliament that are not able to be disciplined by their state bodies uh, because they have too strong a hold on their pre-selection council. The other uh, thing is the uh, pre-selection candidates for the Senate. And that's generally done by some sort of statewide body. But again, in the, the Liberal Party, which I'm most familiar with, mm. it was done by delegates from across the state, uh, from every branch. Senators are therefore more vulnerable to their party organisations because yes. they're elected at large. So you're more likely these days to find a senator towing the line uh, than a House of Representatives member. They've got a little bit more licence to go rogue. Preferential voting is something that we do at federal level, but we don't necessarily do it in the same way at state and local government level. So I should explain what preferential voting is. Preferential voting uh, involves a voter... Let's only talk about the federal election, seeing this is okay. a federal right. election podcast. Well, at a federal election, even in the Senate, it's slightly different, but at, at the... Uh, House of Representatives, the local area, you have to number every uh, name on the ballot paper from one through to, to whatever. Um, and then they that's count in up... That's the lower, lower house? That's in the lower house. They, they count all the first preferences. And then they say, which of these could never amount to more than 50% of the vote? So, you know, you might get, for argument's sake, the Liberal candidate on 40%, you might get the Labor candidate on 30%, which leaves you 30% over. So obviously they both stay in because if either of them got the full 30%, they'd be home and hosed. Then you might have someone on um, 20% and someone on 7% and someone on 3%. Well, the 3% is never going to be able to add votes under him because he's or her is the lowest. So their votes get allocated up. Uh, and if all of them go to the 7% person, then you're pretty close to a dead heap with the 10% person. So obviously I've made the, the numbers up mm -hmm. uh, on the spur of the moment. Uh, assume that um, only 2% go to the 7%er, he's on nine, the other one's on 11. He gets then distributed out. Yep. And it goes up until it so the gets pile allocated the to amount. only the two. And that's what we call a two-party preferred vote. Right. So the pile with the shortest amount, if we start with, say, seven piles, yeah. 
seven candidates, all their primary votes get put into a pile. The, the smallest pile essentially gets eliminated from the race. There's no way you can win. You're coming dead last. Mm. Um, but everybody who voted for you, we're going to ask them, look at their ballots. Look at their ballots to and, see who they wanted to see second who was choice. your next choice. Yeah, that's and then right. it gets reallocated between the six remaining people. Yeah. And then the sixth lowest person yeah. after the first redistribution gets... Um, eliminated again and so on. The, the smallest pile keeps being eliminated, their votes being redistributed. Mm, that's right. Um, uh, one of the myths people believe is that preferences are somehow controlled by parties. Speak to how preferences are actually, who actually decides preferences? Well, the individual voter does, but voters tend to follow uh, the how to vote cards, which is the recommendations of the major parties as to how they should distribute their preferences. So it's very important for political candidates or their campaign managers to try and get the other parties to uh, preference them. Mm -hmm. um, it doesn't mean that, as I just said, that they'll get all of those preferences, but they'll get most of them. So if you look at the various parties, Liberal Party voters generally, unless there's a, a big um, uh, contention about something, will be maybe 90% likely to preference. National Party voters are even more likely to do it. When you get to the Greens, uh, you tend to get an 80-20 split between the right wing and the, the left wing. So 20% of Greens voters will preference a Liberal or a National, uh, and 80% will go Labor. Uh, which means that there's only a 60% advantage once you net those two out in the Greens vote to the Labor Party generally. So if the Greens get 10, then you can basically add, and, and Labor's on, say, 44%, uh, then you can basically add 6% to their poll, which means, yeah, they probably won. Um, One Nation, uh, they're more of 45-55 uh, split, 45 Labor, 55 uh, Liberal or, or National Party. Um, so what you're describing isn't the party, but the type of voter that they attract. Is that correct? Well, I guess, yeah, it's the individuals making a decision. Mm. Um, but if you look at individuals in the aggregate, then you're talking about the sort of person that they attract, yeah. yeah. Now, how reliable is it for a voter to get a party's how to vote card, their, their list of recommended preferences, and use that as a guide to the party's values. So for example, uh, basically saying, okay, well, you've preferenced uh, party Y and party Z yeah. uh, on your number two and number three spots, but I don't like their values, therefore that tells me a lot about your values. Is that a reliable test? Um, it would be foolish for a voter to look at it that way, but a lot of the time political parties are encouraging them to look at it that way so they get some sort of advantage. Um, so it used to be a huge issue before One Nation came along, to tell you the truth. Um, and what we used to do when we were allocating preferences in the Liberal Party is say, how do we make it easy for our people to vote and not to make a mistake? Because if you make a mistake, it might be an informal ballot or you might hand your vote over to someone else. So as long as the Labor Party was under us, we tend to get a one next to our name and then just number down the card. Right. Because uh, that made it easy. Then in uh, 19... Which has got z zero to do with the values. 
it's got zero to do with values. I mean, the, the, the value underlying your preference distribution is which is the preference distribution that is most likely to get me elected. Mm. Uh, and if that means you've got to do a, a deal with the Greens uh, because they're annoyed uh, with the Labor Party and they might be prepared to preference you, yeah. well, do it. What often happens in the Senate is that the minor parties don't have a lot in common necessarily, apart from the fact they don't like the major parties. Mm. So you will get the sort of thing you're talking about where they don't really care who they're getting their preferences from as long as it's sufficient to add to theirs to get them a Senate, what's called a quota. Yep. Because in the Senate, you don't have to get 50% of the vote to get elected. You only need to get somewhere around 14%. Mm. And that's 14% after distribution of preferences. So you had the motoring enthusiast party. Yeah, Ricky Muir. Yeah, Ricky Muir got up. I forget what his first preference vote was, but it was negligible. Yeah, it was infinitesimal. But he just grabbed all these preferences. Um, so they'll make decisions based on who they feel affiliations with mm. uh, rather than are they likely to be behind me and if they're behind me can I secure their second preference yep. or if I can't get their second can I get third uh, and is that you know who are they giving the second to so you know and I think what happened with um, uh, Glenn whatever his name is was that they basically all decided yeah okay we'll take advice from you um, so that at least one of us gets up and not silly. Uh, one of the, look, let's stay on that topic just for a second because I, that, that was the year before the, uh, the Senate voting reforms. Um, and there were a lot of people that were very unhappy with that outcome, especially, especially the elitists. Mm. Um, and there were a lot of people in the Senate that year that really had no business being there. My philosophy on these things is democracy is incapable of being perfect. And when you get those aberrations, they will tend to fix themselves with another election. Uh, and it's not the time to be tinkering uh, and, and fiddling with the system. I think the system was fine. Uh, and, and it was just an increase in voter education that gave that outcome then. But that increase in voter education probably would have made it harder, plus experience, education plus experience, would have made it harder to, to game the system that way again the next time. What are your thoughts? Yeah, I, I, I think the changes to the Senate were wrong. Um, they suited both the major parties, so they went through. And the Greens. And, and the Greens, but you know, mm. they only had to suit Labor and Liberal and they were going to, to get passed. Mm. Um, and they make it harder for minor parties to get up. Um, you know, I don't think you fix political problems by rigging the rules. Right. I think you fix political problems by doing politics. You sell yourself better mm. than the other person. Yeah. Um, and rigging the rules can often give you a benefit this election, uh, but you find subsequently that that's given you a disbenefit. Yeah. Um, you know, the Labor Party used to be very much opposed to preferential voting because they were held out of office by DLP preferences. So the split was on the left mm. um, and um, on the right rather, so, and, and the National Party. And the, um, whereas now the split's on the left. So you've got the Greens taking 10% of 
or more of a vote that would normally have gone to the Labor Party, for lack of a better. Um, so you suddenly find that at a state level, they're in favour of uh, preferential voting because it helps to ensure that that block is corralled for them. So, and they did in Queensland, for example, they changed to optional preferential because one nation was splitting more the uh, right of centre vote than the left of centre vote. Uh, now, where one nation has uh, ebbed and where it tends to be located and, and the Catter Party in particular geographical areas, they've got a bigger problem with the Greens. So they ended up swapping it back. Uh, that's a good example of, um, you know, shooting yourself in the foot. Yeah. I, um, I, would, I would like for voting to not be compulsory and I would like uh, it to be fully optional, fully preferential uh, voting. I think that would be the great system where people aren't forced to vote and that there's less of a market for emotionally manipulated uh, people by the media and by money. Um, mm. I'd, I'd like it to self-eliminate to people who value their vote and, and maybe are more inclined to spend time considering it. Um, and then I love the preferential voting system. Uh, tell me what the alternatives are, because there's a lot of people who hate preferential voting, think it's cheating, that the losers are getting three, four, five votes when other people are just getting yeah, one. Yeah. Um, what, well, what optional the... preferential isn't really preferential. It's only partially. And experience suggests that it tends towards a first-past-the-post system. Okay. Um, because... Well, it decreases the amount of time voters have got to spend thinking. Um, so, you know, um, and it also makes it easier. When you're in an atmosphere um, where people think that because you're giving your preferences to someone, that says something about your values, which has been a problem for the Liberal Party, particularly in Queensland, because mm. of One Nation. Right. Because a lot of migrant groups that find One Nation objectionable uh, there's a lot of uh, what used to be called small L liberals who find One Nation objectionable. Mm. Um, so One Nation can be a bit of a drag um, in um, basically city electorates uh, where there's a, a close margin, uh, where it's more uh, cosmopolitan, more ethnic diversity. Have Liberal Party and fallen into a Labor Party trap by being forced to disavow the the One Nation Party? No, well, if I could just finish this and I'll go back and explain why they set the trap themselves. Um, so the Liberal Party has tended towards just vote one as a strategy so that they don't have to say, yeah, we think you should preference One Nation. Above Labor. Or above Greens. Labor, and they don't have to get into that argument, right? Yeah. So um, they actually set the trap themselves. Uh, Pauline Hanson became a member of parliament in 96. Um, she became a member of parliament because she was endorsed, or disendorsed rather, by the Liberal Party. So she was running in Oxley. It was a very safe Labor seat. Um, it was a seat that was not one that the Liberal Party either needed to win or expected to win. Um, so disendorsing her from the Liberal Party's point of view was a, a cost-free exercise. Having her as a candidate talking about the issues she was talking about, which was basically uh, Indigenous, was going to be a problem in the campaign. It was going to 
cause John Howard to have to answer questions, do you agree with your candidate in Oxley, uh, rather than talking about the economy, which was where the election was going to be won. Yep. So Pauline just had to go. Yep. Um, but once she'd been disendorsed, and as it was after the close of nominations, we couldn't put someone else into the field. So every Liberal voter in the seat of Oxley had only one candidate they were likely to vote for. Wow. On top of that, there were a whole lot of Labor voters who felt disenfranchised and disenchanted with Labor. You had Paul Keating making his Redfern speech. You had him telling people that if you don't agree with me, um, you basically don't deserve to be a citizen or have a vote. Um, and Pauline was running on Aboriginal issues and there was a bit of disquiet that perhaps Indigenous were getting benefits that other people weren't getting. Um, so her appeal ran into all of that. Suddenly she's not a Liberal candidate. In fact, better still, the Liberal Party's just mastered her, uh, master, martyred her and mm. proved what a pack of bastards they are. So there was a slice of that Labor vote that would never have voted for her as a Liberal candidate who now would. So she got, I think, about 56% of the Perfect vote. Perfect storm. Perfect storm. So anyway, she then got quite a following. And, um, and that sort of pushed her into forming a party. You know, she's just an independent, effectively, in the first place. Um, and so on the Liberal side, there was a lot of consternation that if this party gets real legs, uh, then we're in trouble. Um, so we need to have a strategy to deal with it. And the first strategy was saying, as a matter of principle, they would preference One Nation second or at least ahead of the Labor Party. No one had ever come out in an election with a statement like that before because preferences used to be done on the basis of individual seats and what the situation was there and how you allocated things to maximise your chances. Not ideological at all, mathematical. Hmm. Suddenly they came out and said, no, as a matter of principle, this is what we're going to do. And it was only then that people started saying, oh, you can't preference them because they're evil people, they're Nazis or whatever. I have no idea of that history. Yeah. And well, a little bit more. This is an exclusive, I think, because I haven't seen it written up anywhere. But John Howard sent Nick Minchin up here to tell the Liberals that's what they should do. Nick Minchin was a senator from South Australia at the time and a, a leader of the right. Mm -hmm. uh, and John Howard was grappling with the issue. When he saw the disaster that happened up here, uh, Howard obviously changed his mind and he decided he had to get their first preferences. <coughs> and a lot of those people that Pauline might have got are what we call the Howard Battlers these days. Yeah, brilliant. So what do you think is a, a I guess, do you agree preferential voting is the best bad system in the world? I think it is, although voters aren't stupid. They adjust themselves. So in the UK, so the theory is if you do first past the post, which is you just vote one, um, then you'll only end up with a couple of major parties um, because the minor parties won't be able to get the preferences to get to the top. Yep. That certainly seems to be the case in the US. Um, but in the UK, you've basically got regional major parties operating, so the, the Lib Dems there or get um, um, particular areas where they'll do well. You've got the Scottish Nationalists, etc., uh, etc., et as well as the Conservatives and Labor. Um, so, you know, if you're a Labor voter uh, in a 
electorate which is not going to vote Labor but might vote for the Lib Dems, then you'll probably vote Lib Dems first preference because you know your brand's not going to get up, mm -hmm. right? So people will adjust like that. Um, so, I'm, yeah, you will get different outcomes, but I'm not sure how reliably different they'll be and that they won't just even out over time. So what's first if past you've got, the post? Well the, well, the other thing they've got, first past the post is you just vote one. Whoever gets the most votes, they win. The other thing which it's generally combined with is voluntary voting. So you don't have to vote. So there's an element in countries with um, first past the post and voluntary voting, which doesn't ex exist here, which is you've actually got to convince your supporters to come out and vote for you. Mm. And that's not necessarily a bad thing. No, so agree. here we've got a whole lot of people, particularly I suspect in this election, who are going to vote for parties that they're completely unenthusiastic about. Right. Um, and, you know, there's a lot of people telling, telling me, you know, we've had the Liberal Party, uh, we're going to vote, vote for a minor party. Uh, and they'll get the message. And I say, yeah, but where are your preferences going to end up? If you're really serious about that, you're going to have to vote Labor. Now, I don't know how many of those people are going to vote Labor. Whereas in a voluntary voting system, you just don't turn up. Uh, and Is that's that the way you send the, the message. I, I actually hate the idea of not turning up. I, as much as I love optional voting, not compulsory, I, I think it is every citizen's patriotic duty to not leave the decision to somebody else. And that's what I think you're doing. I think you're being a coward and leaving it to somebody else. And people will argue with me and say, well, there's nobody that I want to vote for. And they mean endorse. And I'm like, yeah, but it, it's preferential voting. It, mm -hmm. It's like a punch in the mouth, a pinch on the arm or a kick in the shins. You don't want any of them, but you have to choose or somebody else is going to choose for you. Yeah, uh, And so number the one you want the least at the bottom and put the least bad one up the top and fill it out in between accordingly or else somebody else will decide for you. And the people deciding for you are probably of lower moral character and care for their nation. Or that's at least the risk you're gambling, um, leaving the decision to lesser characters to yeah. decide for you. Yeah. Uh, I can understand that point of view. Um, one of the things that struck me is that you get low voter turnout often in countries that are well run and high voter turnout in countries that are poorly run. Mm. Um, so in the US they typically get only about 50% turning out. Uh, the That's first, an interesting observation. The first Iraq election they had a 98% voluntary voting, 98% voting. I've actually not recently, but in the past, I've, I've looked at the voter turnout uh, in percentages as far as nations go down the ranks, and it's a mix of optional and compulsory mm. voting. It's not necessarily true that optional voting has low voter turnout. No. But that's an interesting... If there's a lot at stake, people will turn out. More people turned out in the last American election mm. than have for quite a long time. And that that's was true. because Donald Trump energised both sides of the spectrum. Mm. You either turned out to support him or you turned out to get rid of him. Yeah. Not many people, I suspect, turn out to support Joe Biden. Correct. Um, and now the bias remorse is set in there. But mm. uh, So do you think uh, staying away, not voting, 
is an effective protest against your party in our system federally? Oh, you can't do it here. Not, I mean, if you and I were to recommend it, we'd be committing a breach of the Electoral Act. Um, okay. So let me put it the other way. The informal vote here, you know, 4% would be a high informal vote. But as opposed to encouraging people to break the law, informally voting, getting their name marked off the roll, putting eight yeah, well, in the box. Yeah, people often make the distinction that you're not forced to vote here, you're just forced to turn up. Sure. So um, would that be an effective protest against the Liberal Party? Or would it be cutting our nose off despite our face? Um, I think because the informal vote's so low, most people, because they've taken the trouble to turn up, aren't going to waste their vote. Uh, you wouldn't be sending a message to anyone because they wouldn't really know where those informal votes have come from. Whereas in the US, where they have people who register yep. as voters of a particular kind, you can see you know, our turnout figures are down. Yep. Our voters are telling us something. Yep. Um, and you know the, the political commentary over there uh, is full of that sort of, yeah, the, the Republican voters are indicating they're less likely to turn out. It makes polling really difficult in the US because to get a, a sample that's going to be predictive, you have to have people who are only, or sorry, you have to have your panel made up of people who are likely to vote. Mm. So the pollsters have to make all sorts of guesses about who's likely to, to turn out. And it's not just party allegiance, it's, you know, are the Latinos going to, to turn out? Are African Americans going to turn out? Are uh, uh, European uh, derived mm -hmm. Americans going to turn out? And, and then they, you know, they make judgments about, well, what's the, the African American, what's the split going to be like sort of thing? Because mm. they probably don't have enough in their, in some states, they wouldn't have enough in their sample. Uh, and they can be quite wrong on those things, which is one reason why American political polls are much more frequently wrong than ours are. Mm -hmm. Very interesting. Yeah, that's a great insight. Do you think, so with first past the post, let's talk about that system, because that's, I think, what most people who gripe about preferential voting mm. think it should be. It's sure. the only fair thing. Uh, what happens in their proposed system when you've got uh, four candidates, five candidates, and none of them get 50% of the vote. Nobody... Whoever gets the most. It's just whoever gets yep. the most. Then. And you'll have a result the next morning, often. I mean, in the UK, they stay counting until they get a result. So you get these really early morning declarations that X wow. is one. What do you think of that system, your pros and cons analysis of first well, past the post? So you, you get a more willing politics in that system because you have to energise your supporters to get out. So our system tends towards more towards the centre, particularly the lower house level. Senate campaigns are different mm -hmm. uh, because of a different voting system. But lower house candidates, they need to cover off enough bases to get themselves there off the totality of the populace. Whereas in the US, there's a, a thing, I, when I first saw it, Go TV, I thought, what the hell's Go TV? It is get out the vote. So a huge effort goes into mobilising your supporters. Uh, they have uh, a kind of how to vote um, electioneering card, they call a door hanger. And they'll send volunteers around on election day and they'll hang it on the door. Interesting. So when you go home, it reminds you to vote. Hmm. They'll have... Uh, block captains, uh, particularly in better organised areas. I think the Dems are better at this than the, the Republicans. Mm -hmm. So a place like Chicago, there'll be a block captain. And they'll basically know how everyone in their 
block votes. Wow. They won't put the get out the vote door hangers on the door handles of Republicans. They'll make mm. sure it's only on the Smart. the Democrats and you know they'll because they don't want the Republicans. They don't want the Republicans vote. voting. Yeah, that's right. So <laughs> so there's a lot more goes into that. Wow. Uh, it means that you can't afford to just be centrist. You need to unless you know you're going for an independent or some sort of centrist vote, that's where your tribe is. But tribes do tend to be on on either end. So um, it's it's not as so there's another complication there in that they have these primaries, which are, again, they're a kind of vote at large. So the pre-selection councils I was talking about in Queensland or Australia are of a select group, generally, uh, of members of the political party, although the Liberal Party has what they call plebiscites, but it's only Liberal Party members. Whereas in the US, if you're a registered uh, voter, you can go and vote in these primaries and in some states depends on the state but in some states the rules allow anyone you know so a democrat or an independent could vote in a republican primary generally it's just the party that you register as but i would i would like that in australia that's one of the reforms i would like i would like registered conservatives or liberals liberal voters or labor voters to be able to uh, let me rephrase i would like uh, Liberal Party members to have half of the say in the Prime Minister or the Premier, so that the the oh, government well, members yeah. or, or the the elected representatives, the MPs, they get the party room gets half the say, but the members get the other half. Well, they sort of dived off again, but they have. If you're talking about electing prime ministers in party leaders, is what I mean. In, in the uh, in Canada, they have that kind of system where the, it takes you a long time to get a party leader. If you've got to change, uh, it takes you a long time to get a party leader because you've got to go through the mechanics of getting your uh, various. Given the last fifteen years in Australia, that would be a wonderful. Well, I think you before you conclude that you should have a look at Canada. Right. Um, the um, I'm just trying to think. I just think Labor would have been stuck with Kevin. We would have been stuck with Tony. Well, Labor has got that system, um, but I think it should be. The, yeah. the, I just can't remember what the percentage is. I think it, so. The caucus can't get rid of the the uh, leader except with a sort of super majority. So not fifty percent of caucus, but it might be sixty or something more than that. Mm. So in a sense. Uh, once you've got Anthony Albanese, uh, Bill Shorten's got no chance of challenging because he's, he's rusted in. Um, but, you know, you often find that the members of parliament are actually more in touch with what the electorate wants than the branch membership. Um, so you can have parties being jammed with ideologues at the top uh, on that system, which can't be got rid of. Do you think, just on that comment, do you think that was reflected in the Liberal Party's removal of Tony Abbott? Do you think that was reflective well, of the party? Well, the Liberal Party doesn't have that system. Um, Tony, it was certainly reflective of the way that his colleagues felt about him. And now, but what you said was that the MPs are already fairly reflective of the members in the choice of, of leader. Mm. Um, I guess I'd struggle to say that was the case 
when the Liberal Party MPs chose to vote against Tony, citing uh, a polling necessity. Yeah, so Tony would be an interesting case in the sense that, <clears throat> yeah, I think the Liberal Party base was probably still happy with him at that stage, but the electorate at large preferred Malcolm Turnbull and always had. Um, and, you know, Kevin Rudd had the same thing going for him on the other side. When you say the electorate at large, I, I can't help but thinking that means the media. Well, they might believe that because they're reflecting what they see in the media, but Turnbull was always hugely popular until he wasn't. Right. Um, because what they saw wasn't the substance. You know, they saw the guy in the uh, leather jacket with the pockets uh, going on Q&A and... Uh, uh, fielding questions pretty uh, flawlessly, mm. uh, whereas Tony was the warrior um, mm. and the left hated Tony, but the base loved him. Tony's undoing effectively was the way he was running the government um, and mm. specifically it was Peter Credlin. You know, he was given an ultimatum by the party room. She has to go. She didn't go. Tony went. Wow. And it was, you know, Peter was, I think she's a great journalist uh, and she shows great um, analytical skills, uh, but she was a micromanager and people couldn't get to see Abbott, so he was aloof from the, the party and they couldn't get decisions out of him. Um, plus, she had a conflict of interest in that her husband was the uh, party federal director. Mm. And there's always a bit of tension between the organisation and the parliamentary party. Mm, uh, and, you know, there would have been a bit of doubt as to, well, is she doing this for Tony or is she doing it for Brian? Brian yeah. Lochname being a, her husband. Yeah, yeah. So uh, he was given the ultimatum. He didn't act on it. Um, so the, the party room acted on him. And we had the, in retrospect, disastrous Turnbull prime ministership. It was would have been better to stick with Peter. <laughs> With Peter? Yeah. <laughs> you mean Tony? <laughs> no, I, I meant I'm, what I said. Oh, I don't, it would have been better for the, I'm not so sure because for the parliamentary wing to just suck it up and no. endure the micromanagement rather than the disaster but, but, that Turnbull yeah, was. Yeah, but I, you know, at that stage, if my memory's correct, uh, Tony had uh, committed to increasing expenditure on health and education and the ABC. God help him. Um, Despite me being a fan of the ABC, they didn't deserve any increase in funding. Um, he'd um, squibbed it on... Them fighting words. He'd, he'd <laughs> fan of the ABC. <laughs> he squibbed it on Section 18C. Oh, didn't he just? Um, so, and, and there's, you know, if I yeah, had time was... to think about it, there'd be a whole lot of other things I could say. Look, I... Tony looked good on paper. He was a fantastic opposition leader. When he got into government, he just... And it might not have been his fault because he's got a lot of problems with so-called moderates from the, uh, particularly New South Wales mm. wing. Um, but he just couldn't pull the things off that he said he was going to do. Uh, I can think of some other stuff-ups which I criticised mm. at the time. The Liberal Party, strengths and weaknesses of their policy and positions compared to the other right-wing options. Probably well, party. their strength has to be their political DNA, that they um, come from the side of the spectrum that believes in individual rights and liberties, um, but doesn't um, think that we should throw people who have um, fallen on hard times through no fault of their own on the heap, that there's some role for government there, but um, that 
primarily it's the, the free market, it's individuals making decisions in their own best interests that drive um, a, an improvement in society and a better society for everyone. Um, they're also the party, I think, which is more likely to be strong on defence and I think we live in a radically insecure world where we can rely much less on the American alliance. Um, not that the Americans won't come to our aid, but I'd hate them to come to our aid like they're going to the aid of Ukraine. And Scott Morrison has definitely pulled the Liberal Party's socks up on that note, tearing up Malcolm well, Turnbull's submarine deal. Yeah, I, I would give um, uh, Peter Dutton the, the credit there, I think. Scott Morrison's been the Prime Minister for quite a while. His previous defence ministers haven't been nearly so decisive. Peter gets into the role and the next thing you know, That's fair. things are actually starting to happen. Yeah. Um, so, and the Liberal Party, all other things being equal, is the party of lower taxes and lower debt. Um, I think a lot of people at the moment, though, are struggling to see how this is manifesting itself. Um, so they have always been the party of pragmatism. Is there a Liberal Party policy or set of policies which far outshine any of the other right-wing options? I think you vote Liberal not because their policies far outshine the other right-wing options, but because you know they've got the capacity to govern. Uh, and you know that they've actually got the capacity to compromise and to bring different interests, various interests together. Mm. You know, the, the problem from my point of view of a lot of the smaller right-wing parties is they're full of people who won't compromise. Um, that's great, but to run a country you need to have compromise. You know, no one's going to get exactly what they want and politics is the process of basically fighting that out or um, auctioning it out in a sense. Yeah. Um, so, um, you know, it's, it's not easy to put together a major political party. In fact, it is extraordinarily difficult. And the fact that... Clearly so. You know, we had, we've had the Labor Party, which has been in existence more... Well, it started in 1893, but it didn't become a major um, party until basically just after Federation. Uh, the, the big arguments before Federation were between free traders and protectionists. It wasn't between capital and labour. Uh, the first labour government in the, in the world was um, in Queensland in 1896 or something like that. Um, you had a few labour prime ministers early on in Federation and that caused the protectionists and the free traders to decide that they had more in common with each other than they did with labour. But you had liberals in... Uh, coalition with Labor. There was a, what they called a fusion government in um, about 1903, something like that. I'm a bit dodgy on dates generally. Um, so, so the Labor Party's been around a long time. Um, the Liberal Party's only been around since around 1947. Uh, and um, before that there were some successor parties, the United Australia Party, whose name's been cheekily um, revived? Kidnapped, one might say, <laughs> uh, by a certain populist. And there was the uh, Australia Party. Uh, I don't know that. Uh, uh, sorry, the, political... national, the Nationalist Party. Uh, so, you know, and they both dissolved in their time and Robert Menzies set up the Liberal Party and obviously did a pretty good job because it's now been around for um, roughly 70, 
bit more years. Was that another case of a perfect storm, or or was he particularly adept at understanding the mechanics and the the fluidity of of politics and parties and, and um, being, being able to unite and bring them together? Robert Menzies was a phenomenal person. You know, he was um, he came from a not particularly wealthy. Um, family in country to Parrot in, in country Victoria. Dad was a shopkeeper. He was also, I think, the uh, local more, uh, mayor, sorry, certainly a councillor. Uh, Menzies was the bright boy who, out of the whole family, got sent to university because you had to choose. You know, the family resources weren't going to stretch to everyone. Uh, he had a phenomenal career at university. He went into the Victorian Parliament, became state attorney general and argued some cases in the high court in his 20s um, then subsequently went into federal parliament uh, he became prime minister in um, in the dates are going to get me but um, uh, just prior to, to world war ii um, and uh, then the, the party just disintegrated under him um, and he in the period after that seriously thought about leaving politics and it was only sort of post-war that he decided to pick himself up and put this together. Now he, by that stage, uh, he'd had quite a career in politics uh, and I think most importantly, and I think this might have played a, a factor in John Howard's eventual success, he'd had a huge loss. He'd been Prime Minister of Australia, been turfed out by his own party. Um, so, you know, that teaches you a whole lot of things, That's a lot of character building, but also a lot of introspection mm -hmm. and trying to understand what had gone wrong previously and how do you fix that. Mm -hmm. uh, and if you look at the way he put the party together, he reached out to a whole lot of organisations and brought them together at a series of conferences, which then ended up in the Liberal Party being formed. Um, Interesting. The Liberal Party today says it doesn't believe in uh, quotas, neither did Menzies, but he set up a women's council in the Liberal Party to particularly harness women and, and promote women. Uh, he also gave younger people a say through the Young Liberal Movement uh, and both women's council and, and the Young Liberals had representative on, representatives on the federal uh, executive. And that was all designed by Menzies. He also designed it as a federation uh, and so the, the state divisions ran themselves on a federal system. The, the federal party itself didn't have any power to, to discipline or take control, except in exceptional circumstances. Um, and he also made sure that the um, federal executive had very little power over him because I think uh, he liked to do his own thing. Um, but, you know, he, he set up a very successful organisation. Um, so, and I think that's part of what the Liberal Party gives you. It gives you that, that history, it gives you that infrastructure, um, you know, it gives you the know-how of how to, to win elections. And it's always prided itself on being pragmatic. Uh, Labor Party used to pride itself on being ideological, ideologically pure. Liberal Party would grab things from the other side if it suited them. Um, so I, gotta, I respect that. Well, you know, I, I think it's, it's sensible. Um, and as I say, you can't get everything that you want, so you've got to do some temporising. I'm 
not so deluded as to think that I have sufficient genius to stick with my ideas only. Mm. I, I really need to borrow all the best ideas I come across, and so I'll grab as many as I can from anyone. Um, which I think is actually one of the problems of right-wing people today is a lack of ability to uh, take truth and facts from anybody that's perceived as an ideological enemy. Mm. Um, and we've built an echo chamber whereby we don't want to hear if the mainstream media, who we trust as far as we can throw them, actually says something true. We, we will disbelieve it just because they said it. Uh, the same with a green or, or a lefty. Um, and, and I think, you know, we've taken a healthy dose of scepticism and made an insulated echo chamber. Yeah, I think it's... And that's not universal, that's, that's yeah, just I, a trend I'm observing. Yeah, I, look, I think that's the way things have more or less always operated. We Always, because I, I think that's the way lefties have always operated and I think we've evolved into that space, but you've been observing these things well, longer than when I, I when I say always, things go in cycles, you yeah. know. Um, I can remember being asked um, after the rapid turnover in... Uh, Labor Prime Ministers and then rapid turnover in Liberal Prime Ministers, you know, aren't we living in uh, unprecedentedly um, unstable times? Well, you look at the first 10 years of Federation, we had about as many governments as we had years. Hmm. Uh, you know, we, we've had times when parties have just about disappeared, or, or as in the case we've just run through with the Liberal Party, uh, there were two successor parties. Um, so we're actually in fairly stable times. Um, you, you've got a different media landscape from what you used to have. You know, newspapers and journalists are much less factual and much less respectful than they used to be. There's more avenues for you to get your news. So uh, there's more opportunity for um, these um, silos, mm -hmm. echo chambers to set up. Uh, at one stage, the newspapers got their funding off advertising. Um, largely, uh, particularly the classified advertising, that meant they didn't have to worry so much about who was buying them for news and what they thought because people were buying them for advertising and that's what the subscription was. Right. And, and the advertisers were paying them to be there. Same thing with TV. Uh, now um, you've got advertising uh, which on the internet selects the content and you know tries to work out who's reading your piece and so on so mm -hmm. if you're not serving enough ads up that way because you've got the wrong political slant then you can be in trouble you've got also yeah. the phenomenon of people being demonetized but as a result of that you've now got an increase in people paying subscriptions so i was reading the other day the australians got i think 300,000 subscribers uh which is more than anyone else and um yeah, 300, was it three? anyway, it was a large number. Uh, you've got things like Substack. Um, not so much here in Australia because our national audience isn't that large, but in the US there's people who are making very good money off subscriptions. Mm. Um, and that model will have to spread here uh, because of the you know, issues with cancellation, etc., and that you can't really make enough money yeah. off advertising. Yeah. So... If someone's paying to read your views, then 
it's a phenomenon that most people won't pay to read views they disagree with. Um, so that will tend to exacerbate that. But if you go back before the modern era, before the, the classified advertising market developed the way it was, every newspaper was essentially sold on subscription. So every newspaper was playing to the uh, particular crowd. Mm. And, and today, even if you go to the, the UK, you know, everyone knows, oh yeah, the Times, that's its audience, or uh, the Independent, that's its audience, or Spectator going down the levels of popularity, well, yeah, well, they've got this audience because that subscription model was historically important there, and I think that's you know, carried on. Thank you.